I, I have found this text that Connie read. I'm sure, I know Connie's a nice person. Um, I've been to her house and she entertains well. This passage is really distasteful. Did you have trouble reading it? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to it, there's stuff in this passage that just kind of rubs you the wrong way. And why did Connie pick this passage to read? <laughs> yeah. um, there's, there's a degree of what we could, I, I, of anti-Semitism in it where you Israelites, you Israelites killed the author of life. Whoa. And then there's this judgmentalism that's going on. You Israelites, you people. Um, you know, don't you people hate it when people say you people? Yeah. Um, there's this accusatory kind of finger shaking. You know, you rejected the holy and righteous one of God. You had your chance and you blew it. And then there's this guilt trip. There's this guilt trip over you rejected, you killed, um, you know, repent, turn to God, and your sins will be wiped out. There's this kind of finger shaking throughout this thing. And it comes across as bad news, doesn't it? Um, so so why, why did uh, I pick this text? Well, the, there are three reasons why I chose this text. One is it is the assigned text for the third Sunday of Easter. So there you have it. Um, number two is um, I've, I'm wrapping up 42 years in the ministry, and I have never preached on this passage. I've managed to avoid it for 42 years. And so it's become kind of a test of preaching machismo. Um, you know, do I have it? Can I, can I preach a sermon on this text? And finally, we come up against texts like this when we read the Bible and we think, what's going on here? This seems so like such a downer. It's so distasteful. And sometimes our friends will say, you know, how can you go to church? How can you be a Christian? Look at this passage here. Look at this passage, how, how, how it, it belittles us and so on. I remember once uh, when my sister and I were, were growing up in church, uh, this kind of passage was read, and it was, it was talking about, you know, our unworthiness. And my sister turned to me and she said, I don't feel that bad about myself, do you? Yeah, and I thought, well, actually, I don't. Yeah, and, and we kind of checked out of church for a little bit. Um, so I want to unpack what's going on in this text and, and take these one point at a time. The, the anti-Semitism. Have you ever noticed that if you're in the tribe you can criticize somebody in your tribe, but nobody outside it can. Um, I can criticize King Avenue, and you can criticize King Avenue, but nobody outside it can. I can, I can uh, criticize my kids and find fault in my kids, but nobody else better find fault in my kids, because those are fighting words. Now, Peter is an Israelite. So when he says, you Israelites, 
He's talking about his tribe. He's talking about himself. He's an insider. You know, and, and as an insider, he's saying, you know, I failed. I blew it with Jesus. I denied him. I ran away. I know what it's like. I'm one of, I'm one of you. We're in this together. So, I'm not sure the anti-Semitism accusation sticks because he is an Israelite also. And he's talking from experience. The second thing is this judgmentalism. Well, how did, how did Peter say you people and you people who killed the author of life, and you people who rejected the holy and righteous. Did he, did he shake his finger and go, you killed the holy one of God? Or did he just, you killed the holy one of God. I mean, is he speaking in anger, or is he speaking in sympathy and sadness? Well, there's a different tone there. And isn't it true for us, it is for me, that the person who criticizes me, the person who makes a judgmental statement about me, I might dislike and I might really hate what that person said, but when I actually take the time to think about it, they're right. They're right. John, you've got a bad temper. Oh, no, I don't! You know, when I stop and think about it, I do. You know, several years ago, my cardiologist said to me, Do you plan to have trouble walking when you're older? Because if you don't lose weight, your knees and hips are going to be shot. Is that what you want? No. Then lose weight. Well, I didn't like him for saying that. But he was right. And he helped me. Sometimes that judgmental statement is a blessing and it's a gift we're given and if we receive it we're helped immeasurably and I would argue that Peter is trying to help his people and the third thing is the guilt trip man church makes me feel guilty Guilt is the responsibility for wrongdoing. And guilt can express itself in lots of ways and go in lots of different directions. You know, some people um, actually like feeling guilty because uh, it kind of dramatizes their importance. They think what they did has 
great, great effect. You know, if only I had been there, if only I had done this. And they like to point out their guilt because it, it makes them seem large. You know, guilt can also made us, make us just hate the person who pointed out the guilt, our wrongdoing. We can seek to um, uh, find fault with that person and can spend a lot of time trying to show how they're a worse person than I am. Yeah. We can uh, fight or we can flee. We can seek punishment for what we've done so we feel like we're off the hook. You know, I've caused suffering, so I'm going to suffer, and now it's even. We can try to balance the score by, by doing good for the other person. Um, we can wallow in the past. And guilt can be about what we've done. And it's about looking behind us. For me, um, guilt can slide into shame. You know, guilt is about what I've done, the bad thing I've done. Shame is about my being bad. And it's easy for me to slide from being doing something bad to Susan to being bad as a husband or failing in some aspect as a father and then just being an awful father. Yeah. And in this sense, guilt can be no, no win. It can be kind of a living death where there's no hope for me. Guilt can also lead to repentance. Repentance really means to turn around and look at a bright future. And guilt can do that. I don't have to wallow in the past where there's no hope for me. I can repent and turn around and look at my bright, hopeful future where things can be different. Repentance says, I'm going to work on that controlling nature. I'm going to work on that anger. It can lead to a rebirth. The problem I have with repentance is I'm still working with this material. And this material to work with in my life is really pretty habitual in its patterns. When we were talking about this passage in Sermon Starters, we began by somebody saying, man, I got up at, to come here at 7 on Tuesday morning to hear this. Yeah. But as we talked about the text, someone said, you know, this has overtones of AA in it. What, what ser the sermon that Peter preaches here has some overtones, particularly the last verse of a 12-step program. And they said, you know, what Peter is actually saying here is 
turn your life over to your higher power. Make a moral, fearless inventory. Look at yourself and see what's causing and how you're causing the problem and how you're hurting people. And ask your higher power to wipe away your defects and shortcomings. Now, in a group like AA or a 12-step program, those groups talk about higher powers. The church talks about God. A 12-step program talks about uh, recovery and health. Churches talk about salvation and wholeness. A 12-step program talks about the higher power wiping out the shortcomings. We talk about God wiping out our sins. Different language, but I think it's the same action and thinking. What's ironic to me is that with 12-step programs, those steps are seen as good news. You know, I'm taking my messed up life and turning it over to the higher power, and I'm taking an inventory, and the higher power is going to help me with the help of the group if I work on it to, to change my life so I can be recovered and healed. But when we talk that way in a church, it sounds so negative. And it sounds like a guilt trip. And I think, why do the 12 steps get away with the good publicity and we don't? Yeah. Tonight in Fellowship Hall, the hall, Fellowship Hall will be full. It will be as full as it was this morning. And sometimes I... I've, I overhear when, when the AA group starts, upper room starts, and I walk in and somebody will invariably greet me. Hi, I'm Mike, welcome. And I'll walk in and, and I'll be looking usually for the leader, Kim, and um, Kim will invariably be off in a corner talking very intensely to, um, to a person uh, that he's sponsoring. And other people are too. And there's also just people talking. And then the meeting begins. Often they begin with the serenity prayer. They end with the Lord's Prayer. That's basically the only ritual in the group. Um, there's no offering, there's no budget, there's no hierarchy, there are no fancy robes, there are no fancy stoles, there's no music. It's just people helping each other. You know, this is how I found new life, and let me help you. In AA, when a person gets in particular need, they, they will have a sponsor. But during the meeting, you know, are there any new people? 
I'm Mary, I'm an alcoholic. Welcome, Mary. I'm Dave, I'm an alcoholic. Welcome, Dave. People are welcomed and included not because of their worthiness or because of their sinlessness or their perfection. They're welcomed actually for their unworthiness, for their need. They might not ever become perfect, but they hope to make progress. So we gather, people come into the building, and we welcome them, and we see groups talking and being friendly, and sometimes there are people who want to get a friend and say, I've, I've got to talk to you. I need to talk to you. Why do we come? We have a need. Hi. I'm John. I'm a sinner. Welcome, John. I'm Nancy. I'm a sinner. Welcome, Nancy. Church is kind of Sinners Anonymous. That's our ground. None of us are better than anybody else. And we're working on it. We might not ever be perfect, but we're working to make progress. And we help each other. We help each other come out of the death, come out of the grave that's, that's killing us. And with God's help and with each other's help, we look toward new life and we look toward healing and wholeness and salvation. This passage, what kicks off Peter's speech, is a healing. They heal a man who's lame from birth. And Peter is saying, you know, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that gave health and wholeness to this man. And it's the same power that gives us new life and resurrection and health and wholeness and hope. I was thinking about how awful Peter's speech would be if it didn't have that last verse of repent, turn to God, and God will wipe away your sins. What if it didn't have that? And all it had was, you did this, you did that. You blew it. End of discussion. Stay in your guilt. Stay in your shame. But instead he has that last verse, which is so hopeful. Repent. Turn around, look at your future. Turn to God, who wants new life for all of us. And God will wipe away your sins. God will change you and resurrect you. And we will be better for it. What a hopeful passage for each of us. And may it be so. Amen.